Welcome back to episode 115 of the Woman of Marvel podcast, where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. This is Judy Stevens, producer. Today, we bring you a extra long, extra special podcast featuring some of the amazing cast and crew of Marvel's Luke Cage. To kick it off, we welcome Simone Missick to the podcast. Welcome back to the Women of Marvel podcast, where the women of Marvel assemble to talk all things Marvel and more. I'm Adri Cowan. I'm the senior social media manager. I'm Judy Stevens, and I'm producer. And today we are pretty excited because we have uh, one of our first Marvel's Luke Cage people to talk to. We have Simone Misick. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Thank We're you. so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. We're actually sitting in the Thor room, and this is like your first experience at the Marvel offices. We we obviously handed you a uh, Misty Night cover night. when you first walked in, cover. and there were tears. Did your eyes get all misty? They did. <laughs> oh, that's a part of my superpower too. Amazing. Cry on demand. Um, so I know you've talked a bit about your quote superpowers, yes. and we love that. Yeah. Um, so. We, we know you, you've talked about it, but what is your favorite part of this role? I think my favorite part about this role is what has yet to be seen. Mm. You know, people are very um, excited about how strong Misty is and how bold she is and that she doesn't really bite her tongue and she says what's on her mind and... You know, people know about Misty Vision, where she can look at these photos and kind of figure out, you know, and do her job as a detective. But I'm really excited about what is still to come, what people haven't seen yet and what the fans are going to, you know, be given. Because that's, you know, the most exciting part is where this role kind of takes the fans. Yes. And and would you say that intuition and should we say woman's intuition plays a big part in that? I think it does. It's interesting. I think if uh, if Misty has a kryptonite, <laughs> it's Luke. You know what I mean? Um, I think she's lived her life being very self-assured and knowing exactly how all the pieces fit together. And then this super-powered human comes along and suddenly her compass is off. And so her women's intuition is usually 100% right. But in this situation, it's a little, it's a little wrong sometimes. We know that happens. Oh, God. <laughs> Men. <laughs> but at the same time, she goes unapologetically down the path that she, that she thinks she's on, right or wrong. Yeah, that, so. I think that's the important part, right? Like, yeah. despite getting thrown off, off your balance, mm -hmm. it's making the choice to actively go in one direction. Right. Absolutely. Yes. So taking a little bit step backwards, like so you you get this role, this prominent character in the Marvel universe. How did you prepare to become Misty? I honestly approached it with just open just like the, a blank canvas. You know, I look at visuals, so you've got the storm visual, you've got the actual Misty visual which is so strong and powerful. She jumps off the page. You have 
Pam Greer, who inspired, you know, the visual of Misty. And so you have all those things that kind of work through your mind. And then you've got these amazing scripts that we were given that really helped me figure out who this woman was. I mean, I couldn't go back to the source material as much because we were kind of told not to. And so there are a ton of fans online who have written about Misty and Luke and Iron Fist. And so you get to read that backstory. But for the most part, it was really just working with the work and creating this woman who I hope everyone identifies with. Do you feel like you take any of the qualities of Misty Knight with you? Or have you integrated your own self into this character? If you ask my husband, (laughs) he would say, why are you always yelling at me about the trash? (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, it's it's interesting that there are if you've got, you know, the three circles where one circle is here and the other is on the opposite and the one that blends in the middle. um, I think that Misty's strength and her confidence are things that I look to to pull from in real life. I remember the day that we shot the scene on the basketball court, and I'm sure that the fans will, you know, see that very soon. Um, but it's a it's a typical alpha athlete moment. I played basketball. I was the captain of my basketball team, but I was not an alpha athlete. I was the person that was like scrappy and went out there and just hustled really hard and, you know, tried to make a difference in that way, but not the person that walked into the court and was like, I'm going to take you sit down. And Misty is that woman. So there's this moment where Simone, the actor, is like shaking because it's all this adrenaline and all this bravado that I have to then bottle into the scene and make and execute, you know, actually saying lines and shooting the basketball and making the shot and not freaking out when everybody is like, what? You made the shot? So it's, for me, Misty's strength, definitely, I look to have in my real life. Um, and then I think she needs a little bit of my softer side because she she can be a little tough. What do you think is the most challenging part of playing Misty? Um, as brilliant as she is, she is not. Uh, how do I say this? You know, this is this is Marvel's Luke Cage. This is not Marvel's Misty Knight. So Luke Cage. Saves the day. Luke Cage gets the bad guy. Luke Cage, you know, and Simone, the actor, is like, but she's brilliant. Like, she's got a 100% clearance rate. Like, she is the smartest detective that they know. How does she not know this? Because you have to stay true to the visual and the story, which is that he's the superhero, not Misty, in this iteration of the story. So I think that was the hardest part, is feeling like, come on, guys, we've got to make her smarter. And they're like, she's smart. She's just not (laughs) the person who's going to catch the bad guy in this moment. And so that, you know, that was the hardest part. That and, like, getting shot in the face with squibs, you know, that sucked (laughs) on the day. Can we talk about that? (laughs) Special effects team, I love you guys, but you shot me in the face. Oh, my God. (laughs) By accident. It was accidental. It still happened. It still happened. It still happened. Well, I will say that even though at the end of the at the end of the day, Luke is obviously the superhero. Mm-hmm. I think that Misty and you are a superhero to all the women at home who are mm-hmm. watching this. Like this is coming out at a climate and time 
in this country that yeah. we need a story like this. Yeah. And we need not only a Luke Cage, but we also need a Misty Knight. Right. Thank you for that. I, th- I think you're right. I think, you know, we just watched the debates last night. We've got the first woman running for president, which is an outstanding moment in history. We are watching her potentially follow into the office after the first African-American president. I think it's important for these um, images in our media and in our art to reflect the changing climate in our world. And women are leaders, and yet we're not treated equally. We're not paid the same. We're not um, respected in the same manner as men are. And so I think Misty is someone that not only little girls and little boys can look up to, but adult women, you know, adult women who are in positions of power who recognize that they don't have to shrink themselves and be smaller in order to survive and exist and thrive. She's the hero we need. Yeah. Oh, snap. (laughs) Which leads us to something we like to do for fun. It's three rapid fire questions. Let's do it. So you just choose the one that more appeals to you. Okay. Okay. So the first one. Can I fail at this? You cannot fail. Are you sure? It's about, it's just about you and what you like. Oh, okay. Y'all are so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) So Avengers shawarma or Deadpool's chimichangas? Deadpool's chimichangas. Good choice. Good Manhattan choice. or Brooklyn? Brooklyn. <laughs> and the last question. Would you rather have Spidey Sense or Hulk Strength? Spidey Sense. <laughs> Amazing. Spidey sense. I think those were all right answers. Thank yes. You. <laughs> I didn't fail. There we go. Thank you so, so much for Thank joining you, us. Thank you, ladies. This has been awesome. Definitely. We'll check you guys later. This is Marvel, your universe. Thanks again to Simone for joining us on the podcast. Before we get along to the rest of the interviews, uh, we wanted to talk about something super exciting. I'm sure you guys know about Loot Crate. They've been shipping some amazing Marvel gear uh, out to you guys for the last couple of years. But now they have assembled the Marvel Gear and Goods Crate for the Ultimate Marvel Fan. This crate will feature official Marvel items like collectible home goods, apparel, and more every other month. Their first theme is Mystics, and it's featuring Marvel's greatest mages, sorcerers, and other magic wielders like Doctor Strange, the Scarlet Witch, and Iron Fist. So if you guys are geared up for Marvel's Doctor Strange and Iron Fist coming on Netflix, you guys should swing over to lootcrate.com slash Marvel and sign up. You have until November 1st at 9 p.m. to get the Mystics crate, and then it's that's the cutoff happens. That's it. No more chance. So make sure you guys... Slide over to lootcrate.com slash Marvel. Now, let's get back to the interviews as we talk to the crew of Marvel's Luke Cage. Welcome back to the Women of Marvel podcast where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. This is Judy Stevens, producer. And today I am in our studio with four amazing women from Marvel's Luke Cage. Um, I've talked to a few of them before, previously in our 100th episode, plus talking about sort of costume design and stuff like that. But I'm really excited to talk about sort of the community and the conversation that happens behind the scenes that some of you guys at home may never notice um, when you're watching Mike Coulter swag around on on camera. But um, so first and foremost, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Stephanie Meslansky. I'm the costume designer for, well, at this point, Luke Cage, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and a couple more that are forthcoming. You're clearly busy. <laughs> Fortunately, they don't all happen at once. <laughs> and you will work along with? Yeah, I'm Sharon Globerson. I am the first assistant costume designer for Luke Cage, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and the upcoming Iron Fist. Yay! <laughs> I'm Tony Barton. I am the art director for Luke Cage. I was the production designer for the last two episodes of Luke Cage, and I was the art director on the previous said shows. <laughs> And my name is Allison Froling, and I am the set decorator, and I was the set decorator on the first three shows, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and Luke Cage. Wow, like clearly Marvel likes to keep it all in the family. What I think really helps is because each of the show, although they have their own feels and, you know, like art styles, they're all cohesive. They're all going to lean together towards where we go towards Defenders. And it's really great that you guys can sort of come on season after season with, this is like three years now you guys have been working together? Almost. Yeah, this, that's amazing. That's so cool. And sort of every, you know, you come back and sort of you know how to, you know, it, it's not like starting off new every time you start a new season, and that's really great. I mean, you know, how, now that you're working on Luke Cage, like, and it's a little different. It's in Harlem. It's not in Hell's Kitchen. You know, how was that coming to the, what, you know, what did you bring to the table for that specifically? I'll answer that first. Because this is the one that I've been excited for as an African-American, as a resident of Harlem. Um, moving out of Hell's Kitchen is exciting for me and moving up to Harlem and exploring culturally um, socio the sociological aspects that are, are addressed in this show um, that are um, parallel with what's going on in this country um, are exciting. Uh, introducing or, or watching an entire show where... I'm not guessing if I'll ever see anybody that looks like me. It's very exciting. Yeah, and the one thing that I think is definitely really interesting about Cage is that it's a little bit back, back. we're taking a step backwards in time. So you're able, we're able to explore Harlem in, in that moment as, but at the same time, what's going on now. Like, and it's, and it's something that's not just in, you know, the set or the cast, but it's also in the costuming and all these little pieces that come together that and what what is re really what I'm getting out of uh, all the reviews and everything coming out of Cage is that it's clearly a, a topic, it's a conversation, and it's amazing that Marvel can have that conversation. Yeah. And I would say, you know, you said, what did we bring to it? It was so much about what did Harlem bring to us mm -hmm. through our research, um, even just having a, a little dinner at Red Rooster and seeing all the characters and the mix of people. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's white, it's black, it's Latino, it's, it's so much. It's all come together like a melting pot. And interviewing different characters that worked with us, especially for the period pieces, Dapper Dan, can I say that? <laughs> I think I can say that, who was a um, very, very popular fashion designer back in the, the 80s, in the 80s, 70s, 70s and, 80s. and 80s. Yeah, and he had such an influence on Harlem fashion back then, and we were able to use that. And, and that's what Harlem, you know, some of that is what Harlem brought to us so that we could put it on, on the screen. Yeah, I mean, we, we, when we were talking about uh, Jessica Jones, Stephanie, you and I were, t you were sort of teasing the suits, right? 
And I was sort of thinking about like what what is he wearing? Are you, or you were teasing some of the maybe prison scenes? That's what I remember you were teasing, or something like that. Jessica Jones. Uh, when we were talking, when we were talking about Jessica Jones, but you were teasing Cage. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And uh, and I was like, ooh, I can't wait. And that was like a year ago. Mm-hmm. So I like I can't wait to sort of see. I mean, obviously now you're so for the costuming aspect. You know, you now you've. Uh, dressed a series of different types of people, but you're dressing now a unique. Uh, each one of them are unique, but now instead of a purple man, you're now dressing a, 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 a police officer who is a woman, mm-hmm. which I also think I'm really I'm so fascinated to see how Miss D Knight comes to life. But like, how did you uh, tackle each one of these new characters? Well, it's as always, it's an incredible collaboration, um, and we start. With uh, we go back to the source material, we go back to the comics and see how these characters were illustrated to begin with, and then we bring it forward into the 21st century, 2016, and the philosophy of ne- of uh, Netflix and Marvel about these shows is that they're very grounded in a authentic, gritty, realistic New York City. So we take what we glean from the illustrations and then we bring it forward. And along the way, we we give a couple of Easter eggs and we tease a couple of very strong uh, comic ideas and we throw those in there just sort of as a gift to the fans. And they always appreciate it and they love digging around and seeing them or waiting until they do see them, wondering when it's going to happen. <laughs> so it's been a really, uh, it's been a really interesting journey to bring that bring those comic book illustrated characters to life into this time and see how we can dress them authentically and at the same time um, make it look real make it look comfortable uh, a character like Misty Knight we went we had to figure out what was going to work on on her she's an amazing looking woman and with an extraordinary face and figure, and we took her from absolutely one look when you met her in the show to the discovery that she is a detective. And so her two looks were in particular night and day, and it, it took a little bit to arrive in both areas, what would work on her figure and for her character, but I think, I think it was, it, we knew it was achievable and ultimately it was achieved, and I think we made her look really phenomenally sexy in those first few scenes. And although she didn't stop looking sexy and phenomenal, she then uh, garnered a real uh, feeling of authority and strength for the following episodes, where she, it was it was revealed that she was a policeman, policewoman. I'm definitely very excited to sort of see how the, the evolution of her costume. But going back to what you said about like comic influence, so for like set direction, art direction, do you guys look to the comics to like pull in like from that one panel? There's a moment where like you know there's a specific like I don't know object that they're holding. Do you guys ever do anything like that? Like little teasers, little Easter eggs. Absolutely, and we also use an awful lot of the comic books for references for color for color references and for sort of a texture and feel to that. Absolutely. I mean, you can definitely see that with specifically Jessica Jones, it's very purple, her logo and everything are very purple and you guys sort of incorporate that throughout. And then, you know, I I, I haven't seen, seen any of Luke Cage yet, so I don't know like what the color schemes, but can you sort of tease like what, what, 
what you sort of brought, like what, like what's the color? How different is it from the rest of series? One thing I could say is um, what's interesting. Uh, our two main sets in the very beginning are Pop's Barbershop and Harlan's Paradise, and these are colors that you don't see in the previous shows. And I remember one day a scenic was painting Harlan's Paradise, which is our nightclub, and the walls in the main performance space, the main performance area around the bar are kind of a lovely mustardy ombre walls with palm trees. That's a, it's a tribute back to Small's Paradise and some of the clubs from Harlem Renaissance time. Well, these colors aren't colors that you put Caucasians in front of. And I remember one of the scenics who was, paint, who was painting, he was saying, this is an awful color. He wouldn't put people in front of it. And I said, great, there'll be no white people in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things that you, when you think about who, who the roles are and, and how the cast and the makeup of the cast has changed, you have to address that in the colors and the palette that we, that we address. Harlem is an incredibly colorful place. Uh, we'd, uh, Sharon and I had worked on another show in Harlem uh, previously, and that's where we realized that we could go a lot further with color than we had in the, shall we say, more downtown shows, or the, color, or the shows where there's not as many people of color. And we were incredibly happy to be able to explore that and utilize colors that we normally don't gravitate toward. Uh, and they looked amazing on these men and women, these actors, um, even though, you know, when you think about Luke Cage, he didn't wear the colors as much. He needed to sort of fade into the background. He was keeping a very low profile. And then again, even in terms of uh, Misty Knight, um, she played this authoritative figure, and for the most part, her clothes were dark, but we loved using pops of color in her, in the, in the sweaters that she wore underneath her jackets. There's where we were able to use our our um, mustard yellows and our deep rusts and those kind of colors that don't always look fantastic on white skin but really popped uh, against her skin. Right, and in the background scenes as, as well at the club Harlem's Paradise, we used color. I mean, the, the directive was more color, and we, we did that in the women's clothes especially. Yeah, great pops of color, nothing neon or, you know, just beautiful, muted, rich, jewel tones. Deep, very mm -hmm. deep. I mean, I always think about New York City and everyone in the winter of New York City wearing black, right? This is the conversation of that. But I feel like once you go above 110th Street, you lose what that, like, the expectation of, of like, everyone's wearing a black jacket and black shoes and, black, you know, a black miniskirt or whatever. And, and that's really interesting that you guys can sort of use your creativity to come together and make and bring Harlem out, which is really the tone, right? Like, it's all about Harlem, and, and that's what the director sort of sold the project to Marble, how he was able to get picked, was because he was like, this is a Harlem story. Mm -hmm. We're going to make this a Harlem story. And that's really amazing. So it's sort of taking a step back. I, I realize, like, people listening at home may not necessarily know what you guys do. Like, what actually, like, what's your day-to-day -day <laughs> is? So I, that's what I really want to talk about, because as someone who um, started out as a photographer, and just was taking photographs and somehow gotten herself into video production. I've learned everything I know on the fly. And But those at home who are interested in video production, I, I, what I really want to stress to them is that there are tons of women working in, in the industry in all these different and unique jobs. Four of you are an example. There's tons more um, on, the, on Luke Cage and all the previous Netflix shows. So why don't you talk a little bit about, like, what your uh, what your sort of day to day is like? You know, you walk on set and you do and you start working doing what? 
<laughs> Breakfast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Coffee. Um, well, this is Allison. I'm the set decorator, um, and my job is basically to get everything that you see on screen that's not made of wood or built or painted. Uh, Tony, who's the art director, is in charge of that, but anything that's like a surface, like wallpaper, flooring, furniture, if it's, uh, you know, if it's a construction site, it's piles of dirt, um, that's sort of what falls into my, my job category. Um, I also sort of oversee the installation of all of that. Um, I make sure that it's sort of executed as per the, the production designer and what the showrunner and the director are interested in seeing. And uh, that's basically sort of a brief description of my job. See, that's, see, like, that's so important, understanding the distinct difference, because both of you guys come together to produce mm -hmm. these sets that people at home see, but the little finesse is like, you know, you're possibly buying the the cup that Mike will be holding. Or... Right, well, that's, I, technically that would actually be props. If oh, it's If it's scripted or if it's something that the, the actor touches or handles or drives or shoots, that, that goes into the okay. props. But if it's anything else, it, it, it falls into my, my job category. Do you, do you guys have a specific set that you guys worked on that you're really excited for the fans to see? Well, Harlem's Paradise. Harlem's Beautiful. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun to do. And um, well, and the music that's created through Harlan's so good. Just, yeah. and the physical yeah. space. I mean, I let Tony talk to it, but in terms of the actual like layout of this, the set design was really fabulous. Um, there was a lot of uh, well, I'll let you talk about it, but a lot of circles and, and frames and sight lines, which was very very fun to work with. Um, just to you know, just to we our boss is the production designer. Lauren Weeks is the production designer of, of these shows, and. Um, He's before there is a set. He's in an in an empty room with the director, with the showrunner, with the script, with the writers, and exploring the concepts that will develop the sets. Um, if I'm on set when they're shooting, then the set's not ready and we're in trouble. <laughs> so, so and then I, I look, I look at myself as an architect and Allison as a set, as the as the interior designer, and those are basically the I think the distinctions between our. Our mm -hmm. jobs on in entertainment. Right. Um, the one thing that's interesting about these three shows, in particular, it, that that has become an aspect of my job that hasn't been on previous jobs is the integration between special effects department, between um, stunts department, and between VFX, and making sure that what actually airs appears to be continuous and safe for the actors, for the stunt people, and um, blowing up at the right time, and <laughs> built on time, and all of that. Um, in terms of Harlan's Paradise, uh, what was interesting about that, my background is, I have a Bachelor of Architecture degree and a Master's in Fine Arts in Theater, Set Design. Um, and so this is the first time we're creating a theatrical club space. When I first got out of grad school, I worked at a company that did rigging for theaters. So we are now doing this theater space, this nightclub, and it's really funny because one of the first people that I called was this rigging company because we needed to hang lights and speakers and equipment, but we wanted it to appear to blend in, so we wanted it all painted as if, you know, it matches and, and works in our space, which is has a lot of curves and circles and, you know, rooms for people like Cottonmouth who owns the club to look upon and look out onto his kingdom. 
Um, and so there are a lot of curves and circles and uh, great viewing areas. Yes. And the designer did a really amazing job of being able to create spaces that sort of stacked on top of each other. So wherever the camera is, you're actually looking usually through two or three different spaces. So you're like looking from the office onto the dance floor onto like the, like the bar beyond the dance floor. Um, which allowed a lot of really beautiful um, cinematography in terms of movement and choreography, which sort of tied in with uh, the showrunners, Cheos, who was really, really um, committed to the musicality and sort of the choreography of, of the show itself. So that kind of, I, I really enjoyed that. I want to add, because I it's just an, a tribute to the work that, that you guys did, there's there was there's also an incredible sensuality about the club. It's just it just exudes not not just sex, but just um, men and women together and relations and 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 um, as you said, there's a lot of what did you what was the word you used view sightlines sightlines. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, but there was a lot of there was there there was a lot of um, uh, moments where people did look at one another and then they looked away and they looked at something else and the camera followed all of that. And it was just the way it was shot and the way it looked and the way it was decorated and the way it was designed was incredibly sensual and sensuous. Um, and, uh, you know, our jobs as the costume designers, we needed to populate that space with people wearing clothing that 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 worked in the in the space as as well as didn't clash with the background colors and just felt of a piece. So it had to be really upscale. That was the whole, you know, Cottonmouth had created this club that was incredibly upscale and the, the creme de la creme appeared at this club, um, both on stage and in the audience. And we, you know, created a, a wardrobe for the people there that reflected that. And that was a lot of fun. And that was, you know, very specific colors and very specific fabrics. And, you know, there was a lot of sheen and shine. And, and elegance. Elegance, yeah. That was really important. We wanted to keep it elegant. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important that most people don't at home realize that obviously you guys are clothing all the main people in front. But you sometimes have to clothe hundreds of people Every in the background. One of them we had our eyes on. Because, <laughs> if, because what happens if, if there's one person that doesn't look right, that's the person that'll be in front of the camera and that everybody will see and be distracted by. And we just couldn't have that. So we had our eyeballs on every single extra in that room and made sure that if they weren't, if they didn't, we always asked them to come dressed or come bring some options. And if they didn't have what was right, we had um, rails racks. of clothing, racks of clothing <laughs> that we could throw in accessories or throw in outfits or whatever it was that was necessary, shirts, ties, suits, entire looks. And we um, we took a lot of people that came in looking absolutely wrong and made them look absolutely right and amazing. And they were pretty impressed with themselves by the time they were <laughs> and, it, and it was very much an homage to days in the past when people did dress to go mm -hmm. out. Now everybody's so casual little lack of respect about it, but people dressed. They thought of everything from their heads to their toes. And Cheo was very interested in bringing that back mm -hmm. as well. That's so true. in this club, people dressed. They dressed well. They dressed to go out. 
They dress to be noticed. To be seen. That yeah. was really important, and mm -hmm. we wanted to convey that, and that's why we. it was so important to us to make sure that each and every individual in that club was dressed as they were. And another thing I, I'm remembering, I'm thinking about, were uh, the, the staff, the bartenders. Everybody wore um, a suit and tie. It was that elegant. It was no casual open shirt with, tucked into a pair of jeans. Um, the waitresses all wore matching dresses that I think worked really well in the space. They had a little bit of sheen and glare, uh, light to them, and that picked up more of the light that the that the cameraman brought to the show. And it was, um, I think it was a real melding of, of, of work for all of us. And it was a really exciting show to work, to work on. You guys are certainly selling the club on me. I mean, <laughs> when I was, when I was there to do interviews for Daredevil season two, we actually did our interviews in the barbershop or like outside of the set of the barbershop. Right. And I was just sort of walking around and being like, look at all the details. Just the details, and like, there's no one in no one in the set right now. It's just us hanging out. I'm like, that's that's what I think is so cool is that you know being able to go to the costume shop and sort of walk down the the rows of clothing and be like, oh, that's from this this one and this one, and like, and then be in the set and be like, oh, look at the little detail. Like, there's like you know you, you never notice maybe the wallpaper or like certain mm -hmm. things like that. And I think that that's sort of like, and it comes back together of, of you guys sort of like the. The collaboration that is a TV show, I think, is amazing. And, and you guys are, which is really sort of um, interesting about Netflix, is you guys are producing a show that no one ever sees until it's all done. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I, and you guys get to work in a bubble. It's sort of, do you like working in a bubble? Is that something that helps you guys? Do you, do you hope for sort of fans' response? Or you're just like, it's done, it's over with? Because that's the thing about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is that every week... You know, uh, fans let them know what they what they got right, what maybe they didn't get right, sort of thing like that. Does working in a bubble um, is that something that helps you guys? You guys have never thought about it like that. Never thought never. about it like that. <laughs> I like having something to look forward to, though. Yeah, and I, I like that at the end. Um, Netflix has built such excitement yeah. toward the, the coming of these shows. It's, mm -hmm. it's like nothing I've ever worked on before. Yeah. It's this, the show, social media aspect of it, the advertising, it's extraordinary. And people, they've just, got, you know, in addition to the fact that they are based on these beloved comic book characters, the anticipation is just out of this world. Mm -hmm. I think what's also interesting for us, as well as the fans, is, um, you know, granted, we read these scripts as we, you know, as we go along, um, but finding the aspects that either lead to or a future show or or hints back to a previous show. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, yes, we're doing them all at once and the fans don't get to see them until they all come out, but the fans still love that, those those hints back to or the tributes yeah. or the people that come back. I think that's kind of fun. Yeah. And in dealing with our vendors or designers or stores and they want to ask us questions and we're like, sorry. We can't say. We'll lose our jobs. Yeah. And that kind of creates this air of mystery and makes them want to watch the show and talk about the show. And they find it really interesting. Yeah. And they want to work with hints. us. It hasn't hurt us at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's the Marvel way. The silence yeah. is, is, is better. Just, just nod and smile. Yeah. Just, like, keep on going. Mm -hmm. I, I, what I will say is that, you know, sort of going back to the, your first topic, Tony, was that I feel like each one of these shows talk about something important that's happening within social context, right? 
you know, they're not just uh, a bunch of pretty superheroes because they're flawed and they have, Mm -hmm. you know, each one of them has something that makes them unique and different. And, you know, Jessica Jones is a great example of a conversation about, you know, uh, when a man sexually harasses a woman, like interesting conversations like that. And I think that that is each one of these shows that come out they're great, you know, they're great TV, watch it, and you can either watch it, enjoy it, and then walk away from it, or you can step back and have a conversation. And and to, to be in a moment now with, with Marvel, that this is something that we can do, it's so amazing. Like, it sort of warms my heart in a weird way, because it's they're not warming topics. Well, I just wonder if Marvel itself ever anticipated being in this situation, where they were in the middle of creating something that was so incredibly topical. I mean, every week it becomes more and more apparent that Luke Cage is just going to hit, shall I say, the zeitgeist yeah. of, of social thought. I mean, yeah, it's definitely the, the moment. It, it, it just, it's not a happy-go-lucky moment, to, no. b- but maybe it will create that conversation that we finally need on, on a national scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to do it at Marvel that, you know, predominantly has been known as a white male corporation, um, and what we're hoping to, you know, with Luke Cage and with Jessica Jones and with this podcast, a conversation about how that it's more than just that. There are people behind the scenes that are hoping to move move us in such a way that and, and have conversations. And, and that's really great. And uh, so I'm excited, guys. <laughs> Together that the story ends and then starts immediately mm-hmm. in the next episode. And we need to, to know things as, as do Tony and Allison. That chair is going to get destroyed, so I need to get six of them. Or that outfit, mm-hmm. two episodes down the road, is, you know, she's going to get shot in that. You know, she's been on the run, and now she's going to get mm-hmm. shot. So I mm-hmm. need to get six of those. And I need to get enough for her stunt double. Right. And, um, you know, that's something we always have to pay attention to. And I'm mm-hmm. always reading, the way Sharon and I have divided up our chores is I always read ahead. And Sharon always takes care of the day-to-day. The current. <laughs> the current. And sometimes I have to say to her, oh, in episode 108, and we're working on 105, you know, such and so is going to happen. And she says, no, I don't want to know. I want yeah. a surprise. No, <laughs> but I would say average-wise, we'll have about a week to prep the next episode while we're still shooting yeah. the current episode. Yeah. An average episode takes about 10 days to shoot, and five days into shooting it, we start the next episode. So we have five more days of this, that episode that currently we're working on while we're simultaneously prepping right. the following one. Mm-hmm. And then the, the day after we finish one episode, we're into the next episode. So there's... Or the same day. Or the same day. <laughs> or the, yeah, there's, the same day. Yeah. Often the same day. Often the yeah, same lately. day. So yeah. there's typically only two or three days where we're not actually working on two episodes simultaneously. One where we're prepping and one where we're, we're actually currently shooting. And um, often they do these things called tandems where they actually... Um, where they actually will will be owed a couple some material from one previous episode. So then sometimes you'll be working on three or four different oh episodes, the same day, which can be very complicated in terms of continuity. That happens often. And actually. it does happen very often, mm-hmm. and it is very complicated in terms of continuity because you're like in Jessica Jones, the whole the whole door with where she throws somebody out in the door. There was I can't tell you how many emails about. Old glass in, new glass in, cardboard up, no cardboard up. This one, you know, I mean, <laughs> endless. And this, the, don't it, talk it about my exhausted. emails like that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was uh, that, yeah. 
<laughs> or there was, you know, in, in Luke Cage, there was a situation where a character got injured in his hand. And then we went back, we, um, we, went, we shot some, some scenes from before that. Then we, we, uh, we were in the next episode, and the character shows up in the same suit. And it had to be remembered that he had this injury. I think, I don't remember if it was his hand or his arm or something, but it had to be bloody. And it was something that was almost forgotten, or maybe it was forgotten anyway. It, it was some scrambling. And, and it, you just, everybody has to stay so focused and such a log of memory and, I, and thoughts. And, and, you know, I don't really know sometimes how we do it. I mean, we copious notes for one thing. And there, <laughs> there's a lot of people that we make it up as we go along. Mm-hmm. That's probably it. In terms of the sets, we only have so many sound stages, and so we're always dosy doing. But mm-hmm. we um, we start way before the script comes out, or the script is released, and and sometimes before the director starts, because we only have so much time to build a set. And something like, in particular, the fourth episode of Luke Cage, which is his origin story, we had a ton of sets to build, and um, and and more than likely started building before the director was even on, the prepping director was even on, because it's just that amount of stuff. And because a lot of it's so specific or so, um, oh, since they're superheroes, it's not real. So we need <laughs> to, uh, you know, back order some breakaway bricks from L.A., you know, two weeks in advance so that they can make them in time to break them. And also sort of sometimes at the same time, you there's another show in the sound, same sound stages as you guys are working, too, which is sort of mind-boggling to me that like there's sometimes two Netflix shows being filmed at any point. Yeah. That's that, unique to this mm-hmm. specific show. Yeah. So. yeah, and that's going to start happening more and more. I mean, do you guys ever get a vacation? Do you ever get a break? <sighs> no, <laughs> we're happy really, to be working. Yeah, we are happy to be working, but and and we do <laughs> steal notice. days here and there. We have to. In fact, um, the, one of the executive producers said to me, "You've got to start taking a Friday off here and there." And I said, okay. <laughs> now, which one am I going to take? Because I said, no, don't go. <laughs> but you know, going back to prep too, we didn't talk about some of our big reveal end costumes, like with Daredevil season one. There was that, you know, his costume at the end, and I can't talk about maybe some other things. But those are planned months in advance. Yeah. yeah. Because they're major, yeah. major Marvel cine- Cinematic Universe productions, and a, there's a lot of fingers and a lot of thoughts and a lot of minds. There's illustrations. There's practical aspects. Um, Sourcing the fabrics, choosing the fabrics, dyeing the fabrics, sometimes creating printing. the fabrics. Because yeah. a lot of a lot of these characters, if they're going to wear a costume, you see what they have to do in the Avengers and Daredevil and everywhere else. They have to move and stretch, and um, uh, a lot of these uh, costumes are made out of fabrics that are four-way stretch, which can be dyed and then printed to look like something else that's not necessarily a four-way stretch. And speaking of that, we also, because we're grounded in this gritty New York reality, we also have a lot of fights happening with people wearing real clothes. Um, and if they're wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt, that's one thing, because that all is stretchy fabric. But if they're wearing a three-piece suit and have to fight... That's another thing. So we have little tricks that we have to. Uh, do you sew like some like spandex? That's in the what armpit? we do. Exactly. We do <laughs> Little diamonds of stretchy fabric mm-hmm. that have been painted and textured to blend right into the fabric of the suit, 
and we do it in the armpits, and we do it in the crotch area, and we do it wherever it's necessary. really in New York City anyway. Oh, I have to tell you, some of the actors have been like, I want my jeans to all have this. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys, which I think is really interesting, you guys have a team of people underneath you that you're always working with. Like You mentioned the dyer. You probably have someone that specifically dyes something. Oh, yeah. That's their job. We have an ager dyer, and he dye, he well, our ager dyer, dyer Kyle O'Connor, is extraordinary. He's a real artist, and he started off working in costume shops, and he's now freelance. And but we've pretty much snatched him up for the entirety of, of Luke Cage and now Iron Fist, and we'll keep on using him. He's he's quite amazing. He takes new clothes. We often have to buy new clothes because if we're doing stunts, we have to multiple clothes. And even though the guy's supposed to look like he's wearing old beat up clothes in the first place. We can't do that because I need six sets of that. So I have to buy new clothes and make them look old. And then the clothes are delivered to uh, Kyle, who does incredible feats of magic to make them mm-hmm. look like they've washing, been used in painting, dyeing, sanding, dirtying, a lot of sanding, dirtying. a lot of, <laughs> <sanding>, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> tools. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. pay a lot of money for that off the rack too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. we have them in house. Yeah, and especially the leather jackets that takes them a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he does an extraordinary job, and it's you know you can't see, you can't tell. I mean, one of the way one of Marvel's ways is that everything needs to look beat up and aged. I mean, that's sort of a yeah. It's funny. Standard. I mean, I guess we have the exact same thing. That's our oh, scenic yeah. department. And they literally they have chains and mm-hmm. saws and they're doing they're they're, they're having a lot of fun. tables that mm-hmm. make them look like they're old and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah walls and, and they're putting up like dust and you know cobwebs yes and sort of incredible amount of artisans to make all this stuff look old and it's yeah. we need this team because we have so many stunts and so many mm-hmm. things get broken and we need multiples of everything and you just you, you you can't buy it you have to buy it new and start fresh so. It causes, it makes for a very large support team, which is fine <laughs> with us. We like having all the hands. Yeah. We need mm-hmm. them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's back to that sort of the, you guys collaborating together. Every mm-hmm. single person comes together and and brings their specific skill. That's if they know how to dirty a table. I, that sounds like a job I would want to do. I thought I'd be able to The scenic painters at Pat Walker, who's the head scenic um, on our jobs, is, is extraordinary. And her team of people are so talented. They can take something brand spanking new and make it look like it was 70 years old. And they're, they're really good at it. And they're really good. Anything that's disgusting or really dirty, they delight in. They really <laughs> <laughs> their, their, their theory, their code word is, you know, what's the level of aging is it 10 percent or is it 20 years or 40 years and and that's Mm -hmm. you know that's where they go from you know what another thing i love about what you guys do or what you know the scenics do and what you design and what is then created is for example the marble floors that aren't really marble Mm -hmm. or the wooden walls or beams that aren't really you know i i'm that just or the water stains in the ceilings. I mean, they do such <laughs> terrible. They, they do such great stuff. I mean, yeah. the the terrazzo floors in Harlem's Paradise. Um, Lauren requested specifically. I mean, the terrazzo floors. This building is uh, the history behind it. In in Lauren's creation of it, is um, is an old club that existed in Harlem. Um, that Cottonmouth, uh, excuse me, that Cornell Stokes. Um, has purchased and and made back to its glory but the floors are the original terrazzo floors and they have the cracks from 70 80 years ago 
and these are painted and painted with cracks and they look 70, 80 years old. They look old. like terrazzo mm -hmm. floors so yeah. from 70 years One Marvel executive showed up and was mad that we had actually installed, he was mad that we had installed real terrazzo floors <laughs> and we had to explain to him that they actually were painted. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's believability. That's and how real it looks. Yeah. Wow. That's and, and like I think that that's so amazing. Whenever I go on set, there's all these little things that you guys put on set that may not necessarily ever be on camera, but complete the look of the room. Um, like, clearly I haven't seen anything of Cage yet, but like I'm going to go back to my memory of the barbershop and think about what I saw in the barbershop and what I, if I ever do actually see it on camera. Like, like also for just reference of like Agent Carter, I was on set there and there are like four or five portraits of uh, Stark throughout his own home and you would never see that on camera but it's it's the pieces it's like it helps I think not only helps you guys create the costumes and you finish the rooms but also helps the actors themselves come in and and be like I'm in the space now and I'm, I am this character mm -hmm. and I think that's so amazing yeah they they feel that with their their surroundings you know they, they start with the clothes because that's what happens first and then they step on the set and it just furthers their ability to crawl right into their characters and really express. Yeah, especially in front of like probably like 40, 50 people all like <laughs> doing something different. Like that's why wow, that's always amazes me. The amount mm -hmm. of people on set is so, and it's, and they're all needed. Mm -hmm. yes. the, the dyer is needed, the person to age the table is needed. Yeah. Well, I have to say also that Luke Cage was one of the first shows I worked on where the cast was actually so vocal and talking, giving feedback directly to the art department. They were consistently giving us really nice feedback about how they really how the spaces really helped them. There's usually a little bit of a divide between the, the talent and the what we do, the actors and what we do. The costumes separate because you guys talk to them all the time, but we don't actually talk. The art department does doesn't directly talk to the talent very often, but they really went out of their way to talk to us, which was part two of two people in particular: Mahershala Ali in his cottonmouth office yes. and Alfre Woodard in, yes. in her brownstone. Yes. And bo both mm -hmm. of them just gave a lot of really great yeah. feedback and it was it was the first time I've ever actually really had a lot of positive and sort of direct feedback mm -hmm. from them um, which was great. Yeah. It felt good. It made it a really unique experience for us. I think it also made everybody who was working on it a lot more like a lot prouder of the, the work that they did. You know, that they cast was extraordinary. It was yeah. an extraordinary mm -hmm. cast. Yeah. It really but I, is. I think also just it also helped because Cheo, the showrunner, would walk through much of the of the details that are in the barbershop are in his script. I mean, he is so detailed oriented, but in, in a in a um, sometimes that can be a hindrance. In in every way that he writes, it's not. It's it's a it's a wonderful um, tribute a richness to, to is there, exactly. And and he doesn't just he doesn't walk through space and say, okay, let's shoot this. He walks through and he's like, oh yeah, let's take this. Oh, this is great. He loves that he loves every single aspect of it and that's that makes it trickle down in essence yeah he was an absolute delight to work with really he was great very personable very uh had a lot to say and had a lot of love to chat love to sit down and you know just really talk about the characters and talk about harlem and talk about his own experiences, and, and he really was curious also to know mm -hmm. about our process, for example, right. and probably your process. Mm -hmm. You know, he, um, we've worked with a, a lot of different showrunners, and he, 
he really got himself involved. In. Well, there was also a level of intellectualism to his thinking, which I yeah. thought was really unique to showrunners that I have, haven't really expressed with other showrunners. There was so many le levels of what he was thinking about, what he was bringing to the table in terms of history, in terms of references. Um, I think that this was a show that, for obvious reasons, just meant so much to him. I think this will go down as the show of all shows for him. It really was an extraordinary opportunity, and I have no doubt that he was glad to be the one that shepherded and he was a great choice and I think it's going to show on September 30th <laughs> yeah and everybody gets to see it well I want to thank you ladies for joining us thank you. yeah well, thank you we'll, yeah obviously we'll be talking to you again and soon for Iron Fist oh yeah uh, make sure you guys head over to Netflix right now because Marvel's Luke Cage is all available only on Netflix. Um, let us know what you guys think about the show. You can always email us at womenof at marvel.com or tweet at marvel, hashtag women of marvel. Uh, do you guys have Twitters that people could send questions to you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Should I say it? No. Yes. <laughs> um, let's see. I think mine is stephaniemaslansky.com, I think. Do I don't have a Twitter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody Anybody has questions for Sharon? <laughs> Stephanie. Yes. Mine is Tony Barton, NYC. Lauren Weeks, the designer, yeah, the production designer. His is L Weeks Design. I don't actually remember mine because I'm not very active on it. I'm never active on it, so Tony actually like sends me something. I think I'm Moonraker One though. Moonraker underscore one. I think yeah. that's my Twitter. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll make sure um, to link all of your Twitters uh, on our news stories. You guys can swing over if you guys want to talk to them online. Um, so thank you again. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. We'll check you guys later. This is Marvel, your universe. We want to thank all the Marvel's ladies for joining us on the podcast. Now, swing over to Netflix.com and binge all of Marvel's Luke Cage, available exclusively today. And as always, if you have questions or suggestions, please email us at womenof at marvel.com or tweet at Marvel, hashtag Woman of Marvel. Plus, if you're attending New York Comic Con next weekend, make sure you mark on your calendars to join the Woman of Marvel for our annual panel at New York Comic Con on Sunday, October 9th at 1.30 p.m. in room 1A06. And tune in next week for another segment of Voices of Marvel with Roxane Gay as we talk all about World of Wakanda. We'll check you guys next week. This is Marvel, your universe. <laughs>